All of us have some experience with courtroom-type proceedings. Uh, maybe, possibly, you've had to be involved in something like that personally. Uh, hopefully you haven't been brought up on charges, but maybe you've been on a jury, or maybe you have had to set in or give testimony in a trial of some sort or another. Certainly all of us have probably seen some such proceedings on TV. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, my dad's favorite television show was Perry Mason. So back as far as I can remember, there was on TV about courtroom-type proceedings. And now, of course, it's very popular, Judge Judy and all that kind of stuff on the TV. We understand something about legal proceedings. I think we have the view, typically, that what happens in a courtroom is fair and just. It's about justice, right? It's all about justice. Sadly, of course, that's not always the case. Sometimes courtroom proceedings do not yield a just verdict, a fair and right decision. Uh, unfortunately, I think probably the instances of injustice in courts is increasing. But tonight we want to study about uh, what I believe we could call the greatest miscarriage of justice ever in the history of the world. And that, of course, has to do with the trial or trials that Jesus faced when he was arrested and before he was placed on the cross. Tonight our subject, our assignment, is to talk about the trials of Jesus. If you'll allow it, I'm using you all as guinea pigs again. I'm to preach, not this week, but the week after, for three nights in Tullahoma during their vacation Bible school. And the topics are the trial of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. So I want to preach the trial tonight. Next Sunday we'll talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection, Lord willing. And so I'll use you all as guinea pigs to, to try out these sermons before I go to Tullahoma. Thanks for allowing me to do that. And thanks for being here tonight. We appreciate the presence of every single person. We're glad that you've come. For any and all who may be visiting with us, thanks for coming. Please come again. Uh, we always appreciate your presence. We're just simply glad to be together as the family of God at College View to enjoy uh, our association together with one another, to be encouraged and edified by the time that we spend together. And we appreciate you for being a part of it. Let's talk about the trial or trials of Jesus. First of all, let's just get a bit of an overview or chronology of how this all proceeded. The first part of it was the Jewish trial of Jesus, if you will allow it. And again, we've got to use the word trial in a very loose sense because we have the idea that trial means justice and fairness, and there wasn't anything just or fair about this. Jesus was first taken. John's account tells us that the arresting party who arrested Jesus first brought him to Annas and then to Caiaphas. But what's interesting and really weird and even unbiblical is that both Annas and Caiaphas are called the high priest. Luke chapter 3 verse 2 calls them both high priests. Wait a minute. I've read my Old Testament and I understand that there's only one high priest. How can it be said that both Annas and Caiaphas were high priests? Well, as it turns out, Annas was the rightful high priest by inheritance. He should have been high priest but he had been removed by the Romans. It's clear that he still wielded a lot of influence behind the scenes, but he wasn't the Roman-appointed high priest. Instead, this man Caiaphas was the one that the Romans had put in his place. It's interesting that he was related. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, and he had been appointed by the Romans to be the high priest. But if you think about it, if he's son-in-law to Annas, he's married to Annas' daughter, 
then he can't be of the right lineage to even be high priest, right? And so he's out of the loop. He's not right. He's not qualified to be high priest, but he's the one that the Romans had put in place. And then after Annas and Caiaphas had spent time questioning Jesus, they brought his matter before the entire Sanhedrin council. Now, the Sanhedrin was a council of 71 elders of the Jews, highly respected. In our way of thinking, the Sanhedrin would be the equivalent of the Supreme Court of the Jews. They ruled in all matters, civil and criminal, political and social, and certainly religious matters were brought before the Sanhedrin. So, Jesus was arrested, brought first to Annas, who sent him to Caiaphas, and the matter was put before the whole Sanhedrin. Now, they're going to find him guilty of certain charges, but they can't do anything with that because they do not have the authority to execute capital punishment. They're going to find him guilty of a capital crime, but they can't execute capital punishment. The Jews won't let them, and so they're going to have to try and get the Romans to sign off. And so, after appearing before the Sanhedrin, Jesus was sent to the Roman governor Pilate. That constitutes what we'll call the Roman part of this trial. Um, What the Jews were hoping for was that Pilate would just sign off on the verdict that they had already concluded and allow Jesus to be executed. But Pilate was a politician, and uh, his principal responsibility was keep peace. We don't want any word of uprising. We certainly don't want any news of any trouble to get back to Rome. Rome wanted all their provinces and all their territories to be kept under control. It was Pilate's job to keep peace there. He's a politician. Uh, He's certainly politically motivated, but he's a coward. Uh, Certainly morally, he's a coward. Pilate, when he saw this thing developing, was conflicted. He understood Jesus was an innocent man, as we'll see in a minute. But he had to try and keep peace with these influential Jewish leaders. And he found out something. He found out that Jesus was from Galilee, and it just so happened that Herod was in Jerusalem. He had come down from Galilee to Jerusalem because this was the weekend of the Jewish Passover. And so Herod was in town. And Pilate found out that Jesus was from Galilee. He sent him to Herod. Basically, he's trying to pass off a a hot potato here. He'd like to get this out of his hands. He hoped that he could put it off on Herod, and Herod would take care of it. You can say what you want to say about Herod. We'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute. But he was too shrewd to get involved in this, and he quickly sent him back to Pilate. And ultimately, Pilate yielded. While literally trying to wash his hands of the matter, Pilate yielded. Uh, and allowed Jesus to be crucified. So that's how this thing progressed in the Jew, what we call the Jewish part of the trial and the Roman part of the trial. Let's talk first in a little more detail about this Jewish trial. Um, we understand that the governing law for the Jews, for the Sanhedrin Council, would have been certainly the Mosaic Code. This was the fundamental and basic written law of the Jews. We know that it had been given to Moses. It's recorded for us in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We have studied that, right? We know uh, a lot about the Jewish law of Moses because it's in our Bibles and we spend a good bit of time studying it. It was not, as you well know, not just a religious law. It was also the civil law 
of the Jews. They lived by that as their rule of civil law also. But the Mosaic Code is really fairly brief if you stop to read it. I mean, look in your Bibles at those books written by Moses wherein the law is contained. It's a fairly short segment. But that wasn't all that the Jews went by. They also went by what was called the Talmud. The Talmud contained the ancient what they called the ancient traditions. It included the written interpretations of the rabbis through all the centuries. And the Talmud would constitute about 400 volumes, average size volumes. So if you can think of a set of encyclopedias with 400 volumes in it, that's what the Talmud included. And so when the Jews had a case to hear, they would certainly make reference perhaps to the Mosaic Code, but they also very committed to their own traditions that had been written down and passed through the generations. The charge that they brought against Jesus was the charge of blasphemy. Matthew chapter 26, beginning verse 63 the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered, He is guilty of death. Notice that the charge they bring is the charge of blasphemy. Now, that's not a minor uh, charge. That's not an insignificant thing. That's a very serious matter. And even the law of Moses dictated that those guilty of blasphemy should be put to death. Leviticus 24:16 says, He that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And so they, they're charging him with a capital offense, death penalty offense. He has committed blasphemy. Now, in getting to that point, they did a whole lot of things that were illegal, even by their own system of law. Think about this. We said you couldn't, if you search through the annals of history, you could never find a greater miscarriage of justice than what happened here. We know that, of course, because Jesus was a perfect, sinless, innocent man. And they're going to convict him of, uh, and put him to death. So this was all wrong, and it was completely illegal what they were doing. Experts have analyzed and documented numerous uh, violations of their own uh, law code. We could comment just about a few of them. For instance, one of the things that was wrong with what they did is that they conducted this trial of Jesus at night. Now, someone said, well, why would they do it at night? We know the answer to that, don't we? We know that Jesus was so popular among the masses of people that they knew if we have this trial and try to convict him and put him to death, if we do this out in the open where, where the, the masses of people assembled here in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, if they come to find out what we're doing, there will likely be a, a, a mob, a, a riot will break out. And so they did everything that they could to keep this under wraps. They did it as you could say in very literal sense, under the cover of darkness. They were already, they were already, they already had their work concluded by morning. Notice, a no, number of experts have, have written about this, uh, and I'll just read some of them. A capital offense must be tried during the day and suspended at night, says one authority. Another says criminal cases can be acted upon by the various courts during the daytime only. 
the Sanhedrin was to set from the close of the morning sacrifice to the time of the evening. In other words, the Sanhedrin should meet after the morning sacrifice until the evening sacrifice. They're supposed to meet in the daytime. No session of the court could take place before the offering of the morning sacrifice. The morning sacrifice is offered at the dawn of the day. The Sanhedrin is not to assemble until the hour after that time. And so, one simple observance is they violated that very basic premise. They're supposed to meet in the daytime. This is, you ever heard in our uh, legal system what they call the sunshine law? Sunshine law says you're supposed to do everything out in the open where people can see what you're doing. Well, very literally, the Jews had a sunshine law. They weren't supposed to, their court was only supposed to meet in the sunshine time, during the daytime. And they violated that very simple rule. Matthew 27, beginning verse 1, says, When the morning was come, when the morning was, by the time morning got there, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. They had finished their work. By the time the morning came, they met during the night, a clear violation of their own court rules. We know that Jesus was arrested and the trial began before any formal charges were made. They had not charged him with anything when they brought him before the council. Can you imagine a situation wherein you are arrested and hauled in before a judge to face what charge? No, you can't do that in our legal system, right? You, you What do they call it? The right of habeas corpus? You, you have a right to know what you're being charged with before you brought before a judge? Jesus had no charges brought against him before this council met. Notice the authorities say the Sanhedrin could not originate charges. It could only investigate those brought before. There weren't any charges brought before the Sanhedrin. And yet they're hearing the case of Jesus. Another expert says the only prosecutors were the witnesses in the crime. The witnesses constituted the charge. There was no formal indictment until these witnesses spoke in the public assembly. When they spoke and the evidence of two, when they finally got two to agree... It formed the legal charge, libel, or indictment. And so, again, they violated their rules. It wasn't legal what they did. Another error in this so-called trial of Jesus was that the trial was conducted on an unlawful day. What day did this all happen? When did they arrest Jesus? I believe we can put the chronology of these events together. They arrested Jesus on Thursday evening. They, they did all of this mock trial or this fake trial through the night. Jesus was on the cross by 9 o'clock the next morning on Friday morning. This all happened at night. It started on what we would call Thursday night, but what would the Jews call it? When did Friday start for a Jew? Friday for a Jew started at sunset or effectively 6 o'clock Thursday night. So anything that was going on on Thursday, what we would call Thursday night, was going on on their Friday. Friday, which was the first day, this Friday was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover. And it was the day, obviously, before the Sabbath day. All of this happened on the day before the Sabbath day, Friday. Notice what the experts say. They shall not judge on the eve of the Sabbath, nor on that of any festival, Furthermore, no court of justice in Israel was permitted to hold sessions on the Sabbath day or on any of the seven biblical holidays. In cases of capital crime, no trial could be commenced on Friday or the day previous to any holiday because it was not lawful either to adjourn such cases longer than overnight or to continue them on the Sabbath or holiday. 
So again, the very day in which this all took place was wrong. They could not legally have even heard such a case, a capital crime case, on the day that they did. Another thing, which was, now get it, we're saying these are illegal components of the Jewish trial, illegal by their own system of law. Another thing that was illegal was that the trial began and was concluded in a single day. Now, again, remember, we're talking Jewish timekeeping. This all started what we would call Thursday evening. But to the Jews, it started on Friday because Friday started at sunset on Thursday, right? So their Friday had already commenced. And all of this took place on what would be their Friday Jesus was convicted and put on the cross on Friday. It all began and was concluded in a single day. The authorities say a criminal case resulting in the acquittal of the accused may terminate the same day on which it began. But, in other words, if you have a trial and you find the guy not guilty, then that's okay, you can do that in a day. But, if a sentence of death is to be pronounced, it cannot be conducted before the following day. So if you're finding the guy guilty of a capital offense, he's going to be put to death. You can't do that in a single day. You can, you can have the trial today, and you can conclude it tomorrow and, and sentence him to death. But you can't do that all in one day. That's what the Jewish law said. And, of course, they are in direct violation of their own rules. What else? No dissenting voices in the court were heard. Think about that for a minute. Nobody who disagreed was allowed to have any word in this trial. But the authorities uh, weren't supposed to do that. Authorities on Jewish legal proceedings say a simultaneous and unanimous verdict of guilt rendered on the day of the trial has the effect of an acquittal. You can't do that. In other words, we're going to acquit that guy. We're going to let him go if, if there's a unanimous, simultaneous unanimous verdict of guilt on one day, the day of the trial. Uh, another, another rabbi says, if none of the judges defend the culprit, that is, all pronounce him guilty, having no defender in the court, the verdict guilty was invalid and the sentence of death could not be executed. Do you get that? In other words, you, somebody's got to present the other side of the story, right? What do we always say? There's two sides to every story. Everybody knows that. Well, let's hear the other side. The Jewish legal system required that the other side of the story be told. Was the other side of the story ever told for Jesus? Of course not. Now, someone might object and say, there, we know of at least one of those counselors who didn't agree with what was going on. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? In Luke chapter 23, beginning verse 50, Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor. That means he was on that Sanhedrin council. And he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jew, Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. So we know that at least Joseph was on that council and didn't agree with what was going on, but you don't have his voice recorded in the proceeding. Probably Joseph was a man, although he very bold to go and ask for the body of Jesus uh, from Pilate, probably he wasn't given a chance, and under those circumstances it would have been a very dangerous thing to voice opposition to the freight train that was moving through this Sanhedrin council. This was a railroaded job for sure, and no dissenting voices were allowed to be heard in the matter against Jesus. 
We know, too, that Jewish legal code said that the judges could not be prejudiced. They had to be impartial. But these judges were definitely prejudiced, and thus they were disqualified from even hearing the case. The authorities on Jewish law said there must not be on the judicial bench either a relation, in other words, you couldn't be related to the person charged, or a particular friend, you couldn't be a friend of the man who's charged, or an enemy of either the accused or the accuser. What's that saying? We want impartial judges here, right? Were these men impartial? Another says, nor under any circumstance was a man known to be at enmity with the accused person permitted to occupy a position among his judges. In other words, if you're an enemy of the man's charge, you can't be his judge. That's what the Jewish law, that sounds fair, right? Doesn't that seem reasonable? We don't want a guy judging who has, as we sometimes say, a dog in this fight. We don't want somebody who has an, a, a selfish interest in the matter judging the matter. But in the case of Jesus, long before he got to that mock trial in Jerusalem, these men had already set themselves as enemy against Jesus. In John 11, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, it says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. They were wanting to put him to death long before this trial ever took place. They were his pronounced enemies. And therefore, because they were obvious and open enemies of Jesus, they should never have been allowed to set in judgment against him by Jewish law. And yet they did. And then to give you at least one more example of how all of this was illegal by the Jews' own rules of jurisprudence, notice no defense was allowed or offered by Jesus. In other words, he wasn't allowed to defend himself and he didn't, he didn't even attempt to. The authorities on Jewish legal proceedings say the primary object of the Hebrew judicial system was to render the conviction of an innocent person impossible. In other words, we got some rules in place. And our rules are in place because we want to make sure that nobody who is innocent ends up being convicted and executed. We want to follow the rules to be fair and just. But it says all the ingenuity of the Jewish legist, legalist was directed to the attainment of this end. In other words, supposedly, they would go to great lengths to make sure that no innocent person was convicted and executed. But in the case of Jesus, uh, he was not given any opportunity of defense, and of course, he didn't even try. In Matthew 26, beginning verse 60, uh, they were seeking witnesses. They found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against these? But Jesus held his peace. Now, this was a phony charge, obviously, right? Jesus wasn't talking about the temple in Jerusalem that he could take down and rebuild in three days. He was talking about the temple of his body. You remember that text. So it's a, it's a phony charge, and Jesus didn't even try to address that. So he, wasn't, he, he didn't give a defense. They didn't, and, and the high priest even said, are you not going to answer anything? You know why Jesus didn't answer? In Luke 22, verse 67, beginning... When they said, Art thou the Christ, tell us. He said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. 
And if I also ask you, you will not answer me nor let me go. Jesus basically said it's a fruitless endeavor to try and offer any logical defense against what's going on in this courtroom. And so there was no defense allowed or even offered by the, on the part of Jesus. Well, there's probably more that can be said here, but you've got you to gotta agree that the Jews, in trying Jesus, violated lots of their own rules. This was a completely illegal trial from the Jewish standpoint. All right? So the, the Jewish part of the trial is all flawed. It's just completely wrong. Nothing's going right here. When they get done, when they finally conclude, yes, he's committed blasphemy, then they send him to Pilate. Let's talk about the Roman part of the trial quickly. First of all, the Jewish council had to change the charge from blasphemy to high treason in order to be able to get the Romans to pay any attention at all. The Romans would not have cared anything about blasphemy. You brought a man before the Roman official and said, this guy's guilty of blasphemy. The Roman official said, what? What are you bothering me for? Why are you even coming around here? Blasphemy? I don't care anything about blasphemy. Get out of here! What do you mean blasphemy? What's that to me? They knew that. They knew they couldn't go to Pilate and say, we've got a guy here, he's, a, he's committed blasphemy. So what did they do? They changed the charge to high treason. Oh, now wait a minute. That makes the ears of a Roman governor perk up in a hurry. What? You say treason? Now wait just a minute here. Tre you say he's committed treason? That's going to get Pilate's attention, and they know it. So you notice uh, in the reading that Ricky read for us earlier how they changed the charge. Luke 22, beginning verse 70, They all said, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto him, You say that I am. And they said, What need we have further witnesses? We, for we ourselves have heard from his, of his own mouth. In other words, so, so they're basing their conclusion on the fact that Jesus committed blasphemy. And the whole multitude arose and led him unto Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, Blasphemy? No. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. You see how the charge changed suddenly? Because they knew they had to change the charge if they were going to get any attention from Pilate, if they were going to be able to get Jesus executed. Now, again, even here what they said is a lie, right? Jesus hadn't been perverting the nation. We know for sure he hadn't been forbidding the paying of taxes to, to Caesar because when they asked him about it, what did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, unto God the things that are God. That's a lie, right? And he was not trying to be a king to supplant Caesar. Remember in John chapter 6 when they came and wanted to make Jesus their king and he wouldn't allow it? No, Jesus didn't do any of that. But again, uh, the Jews knew where they had to base their attack against Jesus in front of Pilate, and so they accused him of treason against Rome. Now, Pilate found Jesus not guilty. When Pilate heard this, it didn't take him very long to conclude, this man is innocent, he hasn't done anything wrong, but he wanted to try and defer this judgment to Herod, as we said earlier, because it was a real political hot potato. Uh, he, he, if, if he had just stopped when he said, I find no fault in him, if he had stopped right then, he, he would have gone down in history of doing the right thing from a standpoint of justice. He would have done the right thing. I find no fault in him. He's not guilty. But, again, he's afraid to enrage the Jewish rulers. He's afraid that there'll be political repercussions if he does. 
And so he tries to toss this hot potato to Herod. Notice Luke 23, verse 4, beginning. Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. There's your not guilty verdict. Okay, let's, okay, he's not guilty. Let's get out of here. It's over. Finish. No. When he said, I find no fault in him, it says, they were the more fierce saying, he stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. You see how badly Pilate wants to get rid of this deal? I'd like to get this off my table. I don't want to have to deal with it. Wait, you say, you say what? You say he's from Galilee. Wait a minute. Herod happens to be in town this weekend. I'm going to send him to Herod. Let Herod deal with this mess. And so he sends him to Herod. Now, Herod, of course, was out of his jurisdiction, had no authority in the matter. And on top of that, Herod's a really shrewd politician, and he knows he doesn't want to get his hands dirty with this mess, and he's not going to allow it to be. So this Herod, by the way, do you know who this is? This Herod Antipas. This is the son of Herod the Great. This is not the same Herod who was Herod when Jesus, who was the king when Jesus was born. This is his son, who, who was governor of just a part, a fourth of his kingdom. Uh, when, when Herod the Great died, they divided up his kingdom. And this Herod, Herod Antipas, also known as Herod the Tetrarch, was a governor of a fourth of that that his father had had. And his fourth included up north, Galilee, where Jesus had spent most of his life. And so uh, he had come down to Jerusalem simply because it was the biggest feast of the Jewish calendar year. And he was there, uh, and Pilate sent him there. But he, he didn't have any jurisdiction in Jerusalem. And he, on top of that, he was too smart to get involved. And so uh, it tells us in Luke 23, beginning verse 9, Herod questioned him with many words. But he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war sent him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. All right, go back to Pilate. We, we don't want anything to do with this. And so while adding insult and uh, uh, to, to what was happening to Jesus, they, Herod didn't deal with it. And so he sent him back to Pilate. In the end, ultimately, you have to say Pilate was a huge coward. He yielded to the will of the Jewish rulers while trying to absolve himself of any responsibility. He just wouldn't do the right thing here. The right thing was he found him innocent, turn him loose, but he wouldn't do that. In Luke 23, beginning verse 14, Pilate said to them, Ye have brought this man to me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I have examined him before you and have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. So Pilate says, listen, you brought me here, you brought him here, you said he was committing treason, you said he's trying to overthrow Rome, he was trying to supplant Caesar. I'm telling you, that's not true. I find that he has not done anything like that. And even Herod, I sent him to Herod, of course that was a, that, that didn't work like I wanted it to, but I sent him to Herod, and Herod didn't find any fault with him either. He's just not guilty. I'm telling you, he's not guilty. I find no fault in this man. Well, notice how the Jews reacted. John 19, verse 12. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, thou art no friend of Caesar. Whoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. What's the worst thing that you could say to Pilate, a Roman-appointed governor? 
appointed by Caesar. He's loyal to Caesar. He's, he's, he's there to protect the interest of Caesar. And the Jewish... Now, these are not just average people. These are the most influential Jews there are. And they say, if you let this guy go, you're not a friend of Caesar. This man says he wants to be a king. And if you let him go, then you're not being loyal to Caesar. He's, if this man speaks against Caesar and you let him go, you're no friend to Caesar. You you potentially could not have said a worse thing to Pilate to, to corrupt his motives in the matter. they basically threatening him here. If you let Jesus go, we're going to see to it that Caesar hears of this. We had a man here who, who was committing treason and Pilate let him go. How long do you think it would take him to get word to Rome? Just as fast as a courier could go. How long do you take it be, think it would be before Caesar had somebody there to take Pilate out just as fast as a, as a soldier could come back from Rome? This would take no time at all. Pilate knew that. Pilate knew that it, they were threatening his very life, really, by saying, if you let him go, you're not a friend to Caesar. And so what did Pilate do? Matthew 27, verse 24, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying... I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate caved. He, he, politically speaking, it was, it, it was a done deal. Especially just as soon as they said, you're no friend of Caesar's if you let this man live. And so Pilate caved in. Notice how he literally tried to wash his hands of the matter. We have an expression that we use, don't we? Uh, if we don't want to be involved in something, especially something that, that we don't agree with or something that we think may be distasteful, we might say, well, I wash my hands of that matter. I'm not going to get involved in that. Pilate didn't just say that. He actually acted it out. He washed his hands and said, I am not guilty of the blood of this just person. Well, obviously, although he tried to do that, he wouldn't be successful in absolving himself of the responsibility. So, there's the Roman component of this story. And again, I hope you agree with me that everything that happened here was bogus. It was wrong. It was illegal. Pilate said multiple times, this man is innocent. Okay, if he's innocent, let him go. No. He delivered him to be crucified. Now, just in conclusion, what can we say about it all? Well, again, what, uh, what we're looking here for is some takeaways from our study tonight. You've got to agree this was the, the, the most gross injustice uh, that could ever happen, a great miscarriage of justice, the greatest that the world has ever known. But we should point out that as this all unfolded, it was not a surprise to Jesus or God in heaven. It was not a shock. It certainly did not represent the fact that Jesus had failed to do what God sent him to do. You know, there are some people, even some religious people, who say Jesus failed. He couldn't get the Jews to accept him. He failed to do what he came to do. No, this was no failure. It was well known that these were the things that would happen. In John 19, beginning verse 10, Pilate said to him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and I have the power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Jesus said, the only reason you are where you are is because of my Father who gives authority to civil rulers like you. You don't have any authority except what my Father has given you. And then 
Jesus, uh, or excuse me, on the day of Pentecost when the, when the apostles were preaching about this, Acts 2, verse 23, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This was all known, that this was going to happen. It was not a surprise. It was not indicative of a failure on the part of Jesus. This all played out just as God and Jesus had predicted that it would. Finally, I want to emphasize to you what Jesus said in John chapter 10, beginning verse 17. Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Notice this part. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. I want you to concentrate on that. And I believe you will see that it is absolutely true. If Jesus had wanted to stop this thing at any point along the way, he could have done it. Jesus said, no man can take my life from me, but I can lay it down. And that's what he did, right? This was a voluntary thing on the part of Jesus. He never took any steps to defend himself. Think about what Jesus could have done through the course of all this. Before they came to arrest him, he could have just run away and taken hiding somewhere. He could have fought to defend himself, physically fought. He could have, I think, it's highly likely that he could have assembled a fairly sizable army to fight on his behalf. He didn't do that. He said that he could call down legions of angels to fight for him. He didn't do that. He could have performed miracles to save himself. We know he was still in possession of miracle-working power. Remember when Peter struck off, took his sword and struck off the ear of the high priest's servant? Jesus restored it miraculously. He still was in possession of his miracle-working powers. He didn't use those. So they led him away. They were spitting on him, slapping him, uh, uh, belittling him and, and uh, humiliating him in every way. They brought forth false witnesses to lie against him so they could condemn him to death. He didn't even defend himself with words. They didn't even make a verbal defense of his innocence. What's that all about? It's about what Jesus said right here. No man can take my life from me, but I can lay it down myself. Jesus voluntarily did all of that. Now, why? Well, he did it for us, of course. He did it for us in order that he could affect our salvation to be a perfect sacrifice to redeem us from our sinfulness. Jesus did it all for us. Uh, that's a, a, a quick, rather quick study of all the things that happened in the trial of Jesus leading up to Him being crucified on the cross of Calvary. And Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll look at that as well. Thank you for your good attention to what we've had to say. As we bring the lesson to a close, we're going to sing a song of invitation. If you would take advantage of the sacrifice that Jesus made, he laid down his life for you. If you're not a Christian yet, you need to take advantage of that by coming in humble obedience to the gospel plan of salvation. Upon hearing, believe, repent, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. We're ready to assist you. We'd also be ready to study with you at more, in more detail. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, come back to him who loves you so much in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.